Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday the 5th of October as we record. Mere moments after the award of this year's Nobel Prize for Literature. Sadly, the fine team at Investors Chronicle has been overlooked once again, but we will persevere nonetheless. Coming up today, we discuss full-year results from the perhaps underappreciated heating and ventilation provider Volution. We look at this week's cover story, which is all about the pesky and persistent discounts to net asset value on which investment trusts are trading this year. We'll ask what can be done and where the real bargains may lie for investors. And to conclude, we discuss the big issue in markets over the past month. That's the renewed spike in bond yields in the US and therefore in the UK and elsewhere too. We'll debate what, if anything, that might mean for shares in the months ahead. Joining me to discuss all of this here in the studio are Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. Also joining me in the studio, Val Cipriani. Hi, Dan. And Mike Fahey. Hello. Mike, we'll begin with you. Okay. You uh, covered the results for Volution. Mm-hmm. Again, the Nobel Committee overlooked you uh, uh, <laughs> disappointingly this year. But nonetheless, th- those figures, I mean, it, the company has been under cosh a little bit this summer due to its exposure to the construction sector and the perceived you know, weakness there and the actual weakness in terms of the end market. But today's results look pretty good. Yeah, today's results were good. Revenue was up about 6%. Uh, earnings were higher than expectations, about 3% beat to earnings per share. Good cash generation, and its its net debt was lower than analyst forecast as well. An overall, an all-round all good performance. And I think the main reason for that is when... We look at the building materials market. There's much of the woes are caused by the higher interest rates feeding into mortgage rates, which then mean lower demand for new homes. But uh, Volution was very sort of keen to stress that although new build is a sizable part of its earnings, it's only around a third, and most of its well, maybe even slightly lower, going towards 30%. Most of its earnings come from the kind of repair, maintenance, improvement market. Yeah, and I mean, if we look at what's happened over the past few months, we can put that to a side for a minute, but what about the business itself, you know, the, the growth drivers there? There are concerns over these end markets, but but where does Volution see business coming from? Where is it seeing business come from? So it's... It's kind of it's got three prominent geographies, and it's it's been a serial acquirer, which I think we're going to get into. But yeah, it makes about half of its money from the UK, roughly, then about a third from continental Europe, and the rest from Australia. And I suppose the key thing is when you look at all of these markets, unusually, you would think that diversification is. A, a good thing to have and would offer it some sort of protection. But this uh, higher interest rate environment and the depressing effects it's had on housing is kind of global. So in all of them, it's faced similar sort of pressures in new build. One thing you covered earlier in the year when you wrote about the company in our ideas section was you know, the exposure to the, the UK social housing sector, which is, a, in this case, you know, a string to its bow, given 
the regulations there and the, they need to improve those properties. And that seems to have been borne out by these these figures. Yeah, sorry, I should have said, the, I talked about the three different markets, but the UK was actually the strongest performer this year, which seems counterintuitive when you look at some of the peers. But it is partly driven by that social housing demand the, there was last year there was a death of a young well the, there was a coroner's report about the death of a young boy Awabishak in a property in Rochdale and his death was linked to mould and damp and following that the Leveling Up Secretary Michael Gove wrote to every social housing provider in the country saying up your game basically so there's a much a much greater awareness of the problems of mould and damp and um, more of an impetus to tackle it on the social housing providers. So that has clearly fed into Volution's results. But somewhat surprisingly, uh, the private RMI market, was they described it as resilient as well. I think there's some frustration from the company's point of view in that they are seen as this... They're lumped in with all of the other building materials companies, which, you know, the people making bricks etc and their products i think they they would rather be seen alongside other heating and ventilation companies such as the likes of ariston in italy and system in sweden and, and there's, there's quite a few players in europe but because there's no others in the uk they're kind of lumped in with with people like i said providing bricks blocks and um maybe much lower margin businesses as well mm. yeah we, we were talking about this yesterday weren't we when we're discussing, you know, the prospect of talking about Volusia ahead mm. of this morning's results. And we looked at the shares over the summer and they, you know, down, I think, 20% in six months for no particular company-specific reason, more that yeah, they've, been, been, they've been lumped in with the construction sector and, and marked down for that reason. Yeah, and people see housing markets, people see, you know, new build starts on homes falling. And although it is only a third, it's still a third, it's still a big driver. And if you're looking at that, as um, somebody watching the market and you're looking at the companies with exposure, then Volution seems like a an obvious target, really. Yeah. Well, shares up 10% today, so, you know, clearly there was... They were a... up 15% just before we came no, into this 15%, year. there yeah. we are. So it's making back some of that ground, which was, you know, perhaps a, a unjustified fall. Mm. Uh, you talked a bit about margins there as well, and, the, you know, the progression there, the targets, you know, plus 20% margins yeah still very much on track and it's it's slightly kind of slightly edged up the margin which given so many inflationary pressures not only in terms of materials but around wages and distribution etc is uh is a fairly decent result they indicated that towards the end of the year and i think this is one of a couple of tailwinds for it um towards the end of the year the um inflationary pressures around the cost of parts and materials is easing somewhat, even though wages and lots of other input costs are still quite high. And what about the the headwinds aside from the end markets, or perhaps where those are manifesting as it stands? I think yeah. OEM was slightly less less of a good performer this time around. Yeah, it's OEM. Uh, they make something called I can't remember what it is. Impellers. They're this little part that fits onto the end of fans. To, distribute heat and that is directly really the they sell those to people selling into new bill market it's directly the new bill market and i asked about 
when they see a recovery in that, and it's basically when the new bill market recovers, when interest rates come down. But what they did say is that they are using more of the products internally and trying to generate some demand that way. Mm. Alex, do you have a view on Volution, its prospects? Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of its prospects, you have to say that the structural, the long-term structural drivers are um, are really sound. And one one way you can, you know, you, you can you can tell that this is a company that's a little bit detached from the construction cycle is that it's managed to grow profits and sales every year since it listed in 2014. So that's partly because of its its kind of roll-up strategy, and it's also the way it's expanded globally. So that has allowed it to supplement the years where organic growth hasn't been quite as strong. But I just uh, there's one part of the results I looked at today where it, it, it really jumped out. This is a well-run business. Um, is their cash conversion over the last year was 106%. I mean, it can seem like a minor point sometimes. We don't always get into cash conversion. But, you know, say say they deliver a million pounds worth of equipment to a housing association, one of their, you know, their big end markets now. If it takes six months for them to collect payment, then that's, you know, that's that's £25,000 that they've foregone in potential interest if it was held at the bank or a much higher return if they ploughed that that cash back into in into the business where demand is strong if they had been paid on day one so you know that obviously in every contract there are sort of hedges for this and ways of protecting um you know long payment times but the, the fact the fact is they are managing to book that they're managing to generate more cash than they are they are reporting uh, in the income statement uh, and that's a, that's a really reassuring sign for investors. So, you know, you you can tell from that that the the, the department tasked with collecting receivables has done a great job. And these kind of businesses, they are, you know, Evolution is in a product selling business. It's in the ventilation business, but it's also in the money collection business. And those kind of margins are, and being able to do both are, are what really can add a lot of value and momentum to a company um, over the long term. So that really jumped out to me. And, that, and that's, you know, a real positive, I think, for the story. I think on the cash part, there is there is one kind of slightly specific factor in that last year when there were supply chain issues all over the place, they were talking about deliberately stocking up and making sure they had as much inventory as possible. But the service provision and the, the ability to get product out to people was more important than maybe a few margin points and that's kind of borne out well they they say that they have uh, improved on market share as a result but as supply chains have eased some of that inventory is unwound which has fed into that cash position you were talking about the final point on volution the acquisitions you mentioned at the top Mike. yeah they are quite an acquisitive company maybe been a bit of a slowdown in in the past 18 months but some new deals still being announced so they're still you know, optimistic, they still have an international expansion strategy too. Yeah, well, I did ask about this. They, um, whether or not there'd been something of a slowdown, and he, the chief exec, Ronnie George, pushed back slightly. He said, if you look over the the course since we've been listed, they listed, it's almost 10 years ago now, in 2014, they've done around two and a half deals a year. So they did two this last year, they've already done one this year. So, Maybe a slight slowdown, but nothing too drastic. And I was asking about the pipeline as well, and he said it was still strong. I think um, <laughs> there's some frustration there in terms of valuations. You would think that in a market like this, which is much weaker, that there may be some more bargains to, had, to be had. But he was saying that vendors are obviously still, you know, nobody wants to drop prices. 
then they're still playing hardball and they are still paying around the same now or they're still looking at paying around the same now than they have been through the cycle. About seven to ten times earnings. Yeah. Well, it's worked for them so far, so they'll be backing themselves given the execution and the operational management skill we've seen to keep doing that. So we'll keep tabs on that as well. Our next section, though, is on our cover story this week, which is about investment trusts. If you hold any investment trusts, you will probably know that the issue of discounts to NAV is proving to be increasingly irksome for uh, everyone involved in the sector, really. Val, you wrote this piece. The big question, what are the, first of all, what are the, what are the reasons for the persistence of these discounts? Because there's always times when, you know, trusts en masse or sector by sector trade at premiums or discounts. And, you know, quite often they, they tend to, you know, move around. But it's really been a one-way street over the past year, 18 months, and, and not, not in the right direction. So what's the, what are the drivers of this as far as we can ascertain? Yeah, it has been lasting for a while at this point. I think everybody I thought uh, was at first was hoping that it might be a bit of a hiccup, but it hasn't been so far. And I think one of the reasons is that there are a few things happening at the same time, and it's kind of hard to separate them. So high interest rates are definitely a factor, especially for trusts investing in unlisted assets, which at this point do make up quite a significant proportion of the sort of whole investment trust universe. So, you know, private equity infrastructure and property are all impacted by interest rates, or although sometimes in slightly different ways. But in general, they tend to be quite leveraged assets, and also they are impacted by higher discount rates, uh, which reduce the value of future cash flows. So investors are definitely worrying about whether the valuations that these trusts are using for their assets are accurate, and the sentiment has been quite negative. But I mean, in theory, this shouldn't apply, at least not in the same way for equity trusts, not beyond what's already sort of priced in in the the underlying assets in the companies they invest in. But even though in this sector, the discounts are somewhat less extreme, they're still still quite strong, quite relevant. I think uh, I was looking this morning, so as of the 4th of October, global equity trust sector, the average discount was 13.5%, so still pretty bad. And that's where some of the other factors come in that are not necessarily just related to to sentiment or to the macro environment, but they sort of seem to reflect a bit of a lack in demand that the sort of everybody in the sector is maybe starting to find a bit more worrying. And one thing there is that those trusts, no matter what they sort of invest in or where they invest in, at the end of the day, they're listed in the UK, and most of them would be on the FTSE 250 and it's not a very loved market right now, obviously. So that does impact them. And then the other thing that everybody's sort of quite talking about quite a bit is what's happening with the wealth management industry, because they are big investment trust investors, have been for a long time, and the industry is sort of consolidating. I mean, we had the, the deal between Investec and Rathbones, but um, there are also a lot of like smaller companies sort of merging together. And what happens there is that, you know, if there are bigger wealth managers, they also need bigger investment trusts that are more liquid and they can sort of trade easily in the volumes that they need. So for the smaller investment trusts, it's not, it's not generally great news. So, yeah, a bunch of things. Yeah, a, a lot of pressures. Of course, boards do have some tools in their arsenal to try and counteract this. The obvious or perhaps the, the go-to in a lot of cases is the, the share buyback. 
there's questions there that maybe about how effective they've been given the persistence of these discounts. There are also other things that uh, boards can do as well, though. Yeah, I think with buybacks, you know, there have definitely been more in the last year. And whether they work or not uh, is sort of a big debate that I think the, the framing now is it depends on what you expect them to do. So if you're hoping that buybacks will just totally close the discounts, it doesn't look like it's happening, no matter like how many shares the, the trusts do actually buy back. But generally speaking, there is this argument that they still support the NIV and they show that the board sort of believes in the underlying portfolio because basically you're rebuying the same portfolio again if you're buying back shares. So they sort of like, you know, they're a sign that um, there is sort of commitment from the board to sort of like support the shareholders uh, and get good returns from for them. But uh, yeah, by themselves, it doesn't look like they're, they're very likely to, to manage to, to close the discount. And in terms of like what else could be done, so there's a few things. One big one for the smaller trusts especially is looking at uh, mergers and acquisitions. So for some of them, merging together for others, whether, you know, just thinking about whether they should sell the assets really. And there has been quite an uptick in M&A activity in the sector. And I think everybody is expecting more. Also because, as we were saying, there is demand for bigger and more liquid trusts. And partly also because over like the previous years, there were really a lot of investment trusts launching sometimes and sometimes, you know, quite a few of them sort of doing similar things. So in some cases, it, it just sort of makes sense that, that there will be a few less. And then the other thing that could potentially be interesting is that there are a few trusts for now that sort of have facilities where the investors can regularly get their investment back at sort of NAV value rather than at share price value. So, for example, Diverse Income Trust does this every year, just once a year. If you want, you can get your, your money back. And I think it will be interesting to see if the discounts continue, if more trusts would be willing to do this, uh, to kind of like give investors the, the opportunity to, to get their money back closer to, to the real value of the assets. Mm. Um, yeah. I suppose it's a, a sad situation in some ways where you have to accommodate people who, I mean, it's understandable, but it's sad that the, the situation has boiled down to, well, the best I can hope for is getting money back at par rather than any appreciation. But given how long some of these discounts have been going on, there would be some people you know, who would have that interest. And as you say, perhaps that could promote a better uh, you know, sentiment on those trusts overall and, and contribute to improvement in future. One thing we did as part of the piece is look at trusts Z scores because clearly with this persistence of discounts a big discount doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to close up and doesn't necessarily mean that the buying opportunity is going to be one that is realized anytime soon so we we've looked at Z scores in an attempt to to rank some of these trust discounts relative to their history and pick out some of the the most yawning of those discounts yeah, we've got um, yeah nice little table in the magazine that you can look at. But basically, yeah, it, it looks like trusts that are trading at pretty big discounts that have not been doing too bad performance-wise in the past year and that pay dividends and are not overly geared, so they don't have too much debt. And we've ordered them by their Z-score, which basically, again, tells you whether a trust is especially cheap compared to how it's been in the past year or so. And in, I think the most, maybe most interesting thing that came out of that table is that in the top 
20 results, there were really quite a few infrastructure trusts, both sort of in the renewable energy space and in the more sort of core infrastructure side. And I think it's it's quite interesting because also infrastructure is an area that everybody tends to cite when you ask them about which of these discounts could potentially be opportunities, just because it really, really has derated a lot uh, off the back of higher interest rates. And so, you know, for investors who are prepared to be a bit patient and kind of like look into it, there there really be might be something in in there somewhere. Yeah, uh, these are the kind of trusts, of course, that that do suffer, as you say, from higher rates and and you know the the bond yield spike, which we'll come on to in a moment of of recent weeks, it hasn't helped them either. But perhaps that just makes the opportunity more attractive in some ways because operationally, you know, a lot of these portfolios are still performing performing pretty well, it seems. Alex, I just want to bring you in again here because you've also written about investment trusts in the magazine this week. A lesson from history in some ways. Yeah, I I suppose it's in the context of wondering if you're an investment trust holder, um, you know, whether you should, you should really worry about the the discount because, you know, all things being equal, you're still hoping your, your managers, you know, can give you some income and capital appreciation, even if the market is being pessimistic. You know, over time, if you're a long-term holder, your hope will be that things are either correct or things are rising anyway. So you don't have to uh, you don't have to worry about about you know the, the short term and the need to buy back shares. The issue with that though is that discounts are in a way a negative for for investment trusts in and of themselves because what it does is it prevents them from issuing um, equ- equity at um, NAV or at a premium. To, to NAV, which has been over the, a lot of the, the low interest rate post financial crisis decade, that was that was a you know a, a real possibility, and particularly in the real estate investment trusts, if they're in a hot sector, you know just looking back two years ago, Big Yellow, the self storage uh, investment trust, issued uh, sold sold 100 million pounds of shares at a 45 percent premium to NAV. Today their shares trade at a 25 percent discount to NAV. Clearly they couldn't do what they did two years ago without uh, causing significant dilution to to share shareholders because you know why why would you you know if you were a new new investor why would you agree to buying shares at a 25 percent markup to the current market anyway that the 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 point there is that it has raised the the cost of capital for um for investment trusts and so not only is debt more expensive but equity markets are a lot harder to tap yeah, I suppose the reason this is a lesson from history is that um, you know, the, the the hedge fund luminary and philanthropist George Soros pointed this out quite a long time ago, and he was he was watching a a real boom period in what were then called mortgage trusts in the in the late sixties and early seventies uh, in the US, and he he saw that there was this really powerful incentive for investment trusts to issue equity at premium because that just juiced the the earnings per share. And so long as you were on that gravy train, it could run for quite a while until that is that the um, earnings started to slow in the business. As you know, every you know almost every sector has seen earnings slow down in the last two two years, and then sentiment drops, and then it leads to the opposite, which is a kind of spiral in sentiment and a, and and you know quite a long fall. So the, the, the sort of lessons there is that these can be quite long cycles and. A correction in NAV is something that investors might want to see before they actually get bullish about about some of some of the investment trust world because sentiment, you know, as as Val said, is, it is such a part of the investment case for investment trusts whether or not 
you know, you take a very agnostic view on, on discounts. So, yeah, that was just the small addendum to Val's brilliant piece. On that subject of, you know, the, the capitalists and, and, you know, for certain sectors and certain trusts, it, w- it will take, I'm sure, you know, a, a change in, in overall sentiment or at least a end to yields and interest rates rising, which, well, one of those has ended, but the uh, the bond yields are still rising at the moment. But there are obviously also idiosyncratic cases as well and cases where, you know, trusts will see an improvement I suppose we don't need to go into specific details right now as to which trust those those might be, but but I think that's a fair point. Is, is it about that you know it, we're not entirely dependent on the macro situation turning for an improvement in in all discounts? Yeah, no, I think it's probably a case of just being quite careful and selective of the investment trust you you kind of choose to invest in. So. Well, the general idea is that just as we said before, just because it's discounted and it's cheap, it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's attractive. But still, there are trusts that because of various issues that they might have had or for other reasons, they do look particularly cheap and they have decent hopes of sort of like picking up a little bit again. So it's this idea, you know, that some trusts do have sort of catalysts waiting for them in the next months or so. And there could be some opportunities for for investors there, even if the sort of general economic environment doesn't get any better. Yeah. And conversely, as Alex said, you know, if these are opportunities for the long term as well, you know, you can pick up a good dividend yield and, and bank on, you know, the operational performance, giving you capital growth over the long term, then all will be well ultimately. Indeed. For the short term, though, we're turning to a situation that has been alarming some people. We've mentioned it many times already on this uh, brief show, and that is bond yields. There's been a bit of a rally today, but prior to that, we have seen a big surge in yields and therefore a fall in bond prices. Of course, it was this time last year that something similar happened in the UK, and we all know the reason for that. That was the mini budget. This time around, though, the catalyst may be a little less clear, Alex. Yeah, so I suppose which we have also talked on this podcast quite a few times uh, before, there's been this tug of war of the past year. So at the end of at the end of 2022, there was a huge amount of commentary, including in our magazine and, and, and also market positioning that, um, that suggested investors thought this was going to be an excellent year for, for bonds because the anticipation was that interest rates and inflation were peaking, economies were starting to slow, and that bond prices would, after a disastrous year, would... Uh, rally. And that didn't happen because interest rates, as we now know, went higher than expected. The outlook for falling inflation has been a lot more mixed. And some of the economic data, particularly out of the US, has been a lot more robust than anyone anticipated. And then pouring more fuel on that fire, the Fed, um, which really is kind of the, the rate setter for this entire market, has been quite hawkish. So it's, it's, it's kind of come out and said it's not about to reward markets with a nice pat on the back and say, you know, all all's well now yields can fall so there's been this this holding pattern ever since ever since where the bond trade continues to look good but the fundamentals are taking a lot longer to be proven right so another way of saying that is that the analysis has just been wrong because the timing's been too early and what might be spiking uh, yields which have really just been rising if you if you take a longer term view not just the past couple of weeks they've really just been you know they've been continually rising over the last um year plus is that you know we've the, the latest bout might have just been capitulation because because you know investors are starting to have to recalibrate recal- the pace of rate cuts, and they'd 
you know, there's been there's so much hinges on the timing of getting it right of calling the uh, calling the you know the top of the the rate cycle. Now there's this you know this muddy picture. Is it going to stay? Are they going to stay elevated for longer? Uh, and there's all the technical reasons why it might just might not just be that. And there's also you know there's sort of premium and 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 uh, and adjustments in various um, you know treasury lengths which might be affecting which I, I have to say I don't fully understand the, the the various competing theories there what I what makes sense to me is that it's it's a very long-term and painful adjustment we might just be seeing the latest iteration of of that yeah I mean the two things I suppose I would say the first is it's clear whatever's driving the bond yield spike that is definitely driving renewed pressure on equities in recent weeks yeah and the other thing is that some of these explanations are maybe a little uh, contradictory because you've got yeah, you know, term premium, which is the the gap or proportional gap between the uh, the long end of the curve and the short end, which we won't go into now. But you've also got things like, you know, there's some people saying, well, they're pricing in better growth rates. And some people are saying, well, actually, we're, it's because people are actually finally starting to price in a recession in the US. So, you know, entirely yeah. contradictory. Nonetheless, <laughs> all of this, this recent move, because obviously with interest rates rising, this has been going on at a more gradual pace for a while. But this recent move does seem to at least have been sparked by the Fed decision, or at least their their dot plots last month, where they indicated that, you know, rates weren't going to be cut anytime soon, which to to me, and I think to a lot of people, is an obvious point, but markets really hadn't priced, or it seems like they hadn't really priced that in. They were still expecting a lot of mm. uh, rate cuts, you know, much sooner than you and I might think. Of course, who knows if this gets really bad, then maybe those rate cuts will materialize out of panic. But let's hope we don't get to that situation. Uh, I mean, the, the the ultimate point of all this discussion, really, though, is to is to look as well about what the implications could be. Clearly, six months ago or so, we had a US, you know, mini banking panic, based on the fact that a lot of uh, banks were on, still are, you know, holding bonds, they're holding them to maturity, but they had to mark them to market in some cases and that you know left them nursing big losses and then we saw what happened with silicon valley bank and and people getting worried about regional banks i suppose the initial thought is, is would this latest increase run the risk of a repeat of that kind of situation albeit one where you'd hope people are a bit more cognizant of of the various supports and at least the situation rather than this being a new issue yes in short i think you are you, you, you kind of get very good uh, half answer at the end of yeah. there but the, i mean the so uh, from yeah i mean from what i've been what i've read is that you know the very big unrealized losses on the uh, on the U, on us banks balance sheet so they own hundreds of billions of government bonds which contribute to their to the way their capital is is calculated they're still there and they're now they're now they've now booked larger unrealized losses and I mean, fortunately, most of that is held to maturity, so they don't have they're not forced sellers of that uh, uh, capital or, or that debt. But as we, yeah, as we saw in March with the blow up of Silicon Valley Bank and and others, the impression of any issue with a bank's capital or balance sheet has unintended and very serious consequences, which you know everything un- can un- unravel very very quickly. European banks, it looks like a little bit more insulated in part because they reduce their exposure to bonds, but I mean, the lesson, you know, from the beginning of this year, and it wasn't that long ago, is that in moments of crisis, you know, emotion can really take over. Uh, and, you know, obviously in the case of Silicon Valley, it was a bit idiosyncratic because of the nature of the deposit, deposited base there. And mm. the, the, the bank run was kind of exacerbated by the business structure. But, you know, in moments of crisis, you know, and we've you know got 
it looks like we've got a big issue with Metro Bank this week as well. It becomes very hard to assign probability to outcomes. So you get massive, you, you get massive, uh, you know, sell-offs in, in equity prices and these, these sort of jumps in, in markets. So yeah, don't rule it out is, uh, I, I think, has to be the watchword. Yeah. And of course, even though in that case, it was pretty US concentrated, aside from the uh, tangential fall of Credit Suisse, you know, the, these concerns, as you say, do do reverberate around markets, albeit, you know, even in the month since then, in case of UK banks, you know, there hasn't really been any deposit flight. So there isn't that kind of fundamental concern there, partly because those banks are so big already. There are, though, you know, other sectors have been affected. UK insurers, we've spoken about a bit in, in recent weeks, partly because of the yields already, dividend yields already on offer there and the valuations looking relatively bombed out. They've been hit a bit again this week, like the investment trust we talked about because of the increase in, you know, in some ways in discount rates and the way these things ripple around. Utilities in the US have been quite badly hit over here, not so much. That's partly because, you know, the water sector has had new investment plans. So I suppose it always comes down to to those fundamentals. It does always seem in situations like this, though, that we can talk about what's happened in recent weeks and months. And then the pinch point will always be something which no one, despite our best efforts, has really identified. So, you know, the lesson is maybe the unknown unknowns are the ones to uh, really watch out for insofar as that's a lesson which is not helpful at well, all. Well, yeah, I mean, to mangle, to mangle the metaphor, you know, this is a grey rhino event in that it's been emerging for, you know, it's something we know about and we can see and there are ways to address it in, in advance, but we might not be doing enough about it. But the, you know, the catalyst for a crisis might be a black swan style hiccup or some liquidity event in the financial plumbing, which is very, very hard to get a, a read on from the outside until it hits. So, um, yeah, it could be a hedge fund blow up. You, you don't know when, when things are moving dramatically. These are all possibilities. Equally, it could all turn out to be fine and yes. a great uh, we'll, we'll, buying opportunity. Yeah. You know, we, we don't want to, I suppose, go head over, head over heels straight into it now because some people have been making some, you know, doomy comparisons with, with previous years this week. But one, one comparison I saw was with the, uh, the taper tantrum in 2013. Again, a similar thing sparked by Fed's, well, indication from Bernanke at the time that they were stopping bond buying. That was quickly righted by the Fed. I'm not sure we can necessarily expect them to step in uh, this time so quickly. However, that w- that was a situation where you know there was a lot of concern about rising bond yields, and ultimately it kind of came out in the wash. So we shall see. As I often like to say on the on this show, you know, it's difficult to to you know, well, it's impossible to predict the future, isn't it? But nonetheless, we should be aware of these these risks and the possibility that it will all turn out to be fine. On that note, (laughs) I'm going to conclude. Uh, We have run out of time, but thank you very much to Alex, to Val and to Mike. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Market Show. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.